You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Tehran is running password spraying attacks, especially on Thursdays and Sundays. More on the renewed popularity of DDoS attacks. NCSC warns British businesses against ransomware. Two journalists win the Nobel Peace Prize. Joe Kerrigan shares his thoughts on Grift Horse. Our guest is Bindu Sundarasan from AT&T Cybersecurity on football season and cyber risks. And watch out for small data cards in your peanut butter sandwiches, friends. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, October 12, 2021. The Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center yesterday released a report on Dev0343, an activity cluster Redmond connects to Iran. Dev0343 has been conducting password spraying attacks against more than 250 Office 365 tenants. Fewer than 20 of the attempts were successful. Targets include U.S. and Israeli defense technology companies, Persian Gulf ports of entry, or global maritime transportation. The target selection is unsurprising as it's consistent with Iranian intelligence requirements. As Redmond puts it, quote, This activity likely supports the national interests of the Islamic Republic of Iran based on pattern-of-life analysis, extensive crossover in geographic and sectoral targeting with Iranian actors, and alignment of techniques and targets with another actor originating in Iran. Microsoft assesses this targeting supports Iranian government tracking of adversary security services and maritime shipping in the Middle East to enhance their contingency plans. Gaining access to commercial satellite imagery and proprietary shipping plans and logs could help Iran compensate for its developing satellite program. Given Iran's past cyber and military attacks against shipping and maritime targets, Microsoft believes this activity increases the risks to companies in those sectors, and we encourage our customers in these industries and geographic regions to review the information shared in this blog to defend themselves from this threat. End quote. In the course of its campaign, Dev0343 emulated a Firefox browser and used IPs hosted on Tor. It most often targeted auto-discover and active sync. Those of you interested in schedules and workplace customs in and around threat actors will take note that Dev0343 was most active on Sundays and Thursdays between 7.30 a.m. Tehran time, when the factory whistle blew, and 8.30 p.m., which seems to have been quitting time. 
Microsoft uses the dev prefix followed by a numeral to designate a threat actor that isn't yet fully classified. Once it's categorized and identified the actor, the company typically moves to one of its familiar elemental threat names. Microsoft also disclosed that in August it successfully mitigated a distributed denial-of-service attack against an unnamed Azure customer. At 2.4 terabytes per second, the incident was, at the time, according to the record, the biggest volumetric attack so far observed. The Maris botnet broke the record shortly after the attack against the Azure customer. Quote, The attack traffic originated from approximately 70,000 sources and from multiple countries in the Asia-Pacific region, such as Malaysia, Vietnam, Taiwan, Japan, and China, as well as from the United States. End quote. Microsoft continued their account of the incident, quote, The attack vector was a UDP reflection spanning more than 10 minutes with very short-lived bursts, each ramping up in seconds to terabit volumes. In total, we monitored three main peaks, the first at 2.4 terabits per second, the second at 0.55 terabits per second, and the third at 1.7 terabits per second, end quote. Microsoft, who we note in a spirit of full disclosure is a CyberWire sponsor, has in general seen a year-over-year rise in the number of DDoS attacks. While the attack's total throughput is down a bit, the number of attacks is up by about 20%. The BBC reports that the head of Britain's National Cybersecurity Center, speaking at Chatham House Cyber 2021, described Russian-tolerated criminal cybercrime, notably ransomware, as a threat to the security of British businesses. In this, as in other matters, the Five Eyes tend to see the threat landscape through similar lenses, with both Russia and China bulking large. The NCSC's director, Lindy Cameron, emphasized that ransomware, however, represented the most immediate danger. The Nobel Committee Friday announced that two journalists, Maria Ressa of the Rappler in the Philippines and Dmitry Moratov of Novaya Gazetya in Russia, would be awarded this year's Peace Prize. The Washington Post describes both journalists' critical engagement with their respective governments. Both, and especially Mr. Moratov, have worked at considerable personal risk. Congratulations to them. A Maryland couple have been charged with violations of the Atomic Energy Act. Jonathan and Diana Tebby are said to have sold restricted data related to submarine nuclear propulsion systems to an FBI undercover operative they believe to be an agent of a foreign power. Jonathan Tebby is an engineer employed by the U.S. Department of the Navy. The Tebbies are said to have asked for $100,000 in Bitcoin, of course, in exchange for the restricted data they were offering. Restricted data is a term of art described in the U.S. Atomic Energy Act as, quote, all data concerning design, manufacture, or utilization of atomic weapons, the production of special nuclear material, or the use of special nuclear material in the production of energy, end quote. Restricted data is not itself a classification, and data so marked may be controlled at any number of levels, running at least from the relatively low-level confidential classification up through top secret. The Baltimore Sun reports that the information was stored on SD cards, which were then hidden in a Band-Aid wrapper, 
or a peanut butter sandwich, no word on whether jelly was included, before being deposited in what spies call a dead drop, which the FBI told them would be out in West Virginia. CBS News and others report that the FBI was tipped off by the unnamed foreign power. Who might that unnamed power be? There's reason to think, from the internal evidence of the indictment, that the unnamed power was itself an operator of nuclear submarines. There are six nations who operate nuclear subs, Russia, China, India, the UK, France, and the US, with Australia to join the club as a seventh member in a few years, under an agreement recently concluded with the U.S. and the U.K. Assuming that a wannabe spy would be likeliest to approach a rival submarine power, that leaves Russia, China, India, the U.K., and France. It's unlikely in the extreme that either Russia or China would tip off the FBI about anything. India might, but on the other hand, it might not. You'd have to be an extraordinarily stupid spy to offer American secrets to the British and think this would go unremarked, and so, while stranger things have happened, we can probably rule out the UK and, for that matter, Australia, since the five eyes generally see eye to eye. So France. Maybe. It would still require a degree of cluelessness to approach a close US ally like France, But a newbie spy might well decide that was a good bet, especially given French irritation about the Australian agreement with the U.S. and U.K., which cut French builders off from a potential market. The timeline's not clear, but it's a nice theory. Dmitry Alperovitch, who's been tweeting about this a little, thinks on other evidence that it was France. Quote, Oh, and he told his fake handler that he wants to one day meet them in a cafe and have a bottle of wine. Case closed, Mr. Alperovich tweeted. If it was the French, we hope the FBI said merci and sent over a nice bottle of bourbon. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. 
Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Are you ready for some football? That's American football for our international listeners, not the Ted Lasso football is life variety you all play in the majority of the world. I have been informed by loved ones who track such things that it is indeed football season. Bindu Sundresan is director at AT&T Cybersecurity, and she reminds us that when it comes to the security of personal information, it's important to keep your eye on the ball. When you have, you know, sports events, you know, the football season, like we're talking about, you know, it really does garner attention from the malicious actor. So, you know, we all have to have our guards up and make sure that, you know, the information that we are sharing on social media, on, you know, uh, uh, ticketing platforms that we are using to buy these tickets or, you know, even at stadiums when we go to watch, you know, everything is automated today with every technology and innovation that we have, you know, think of it as yet another attack vector, an avenue for the malicious actor to use to go after. How many of us, you know, truly use different user IDs and passwords for different things, right? Most of us don't. So, you know, that's why we see an uptick in credential stuffing attacks. So what this really means is, you know, the credentials that you're using to watch, you know, the football games versus to shop online versus for your social media, if they're all the same, you know, anywhere where I could, you know, really get access to that, you know, credentials, I will now use it maliciously. And think about, you know, all of the, you know, websites that we, you know, go to as we are, you know, really looking forward to these games and we are, you know, trying to get, let's say, tickets or, you know, posting on social media. You know, we fall prey to social engineering in the sense that really may not be thinking about it from a cybersecurity point of view. But keep in mind that, you know, it is exactly that moment that the malicious actor wants to prey on, right? It is that you know, you've let your guard down, you are not thinking about it as like cyber crime, you know, type of, uh, you know, mode, right? All the security awareness and training that you've gotten, you know, at work and, you know, what you've read about, you know, sort of goes off out the window when, you know, you're sort of being entertained and you're watching a game. So, mm-hmm. you know, the key is, you know, even even public Wi-Fi spots, hotspots, right? So, you know, we know that you're not supposed to connect to, you know, just public Wi-Fi hotspots and have all the, you know, transactions happen on guest Wi-Fi. But you know that, but then when you're at a stadium, how often are you thinking? You know, are you just going to be, you know, doing all types of transactions and, you know, on your mobile phone while you're watching a game at a stadium? Most likely you are, right? So it is about being aware of how the malicious actor is looking to leverage 
any and all opportunity that they can, it happens, right? So it's key that, you know, with the new season and, you know, with all of us, you know, also coming off of the pandemic, you know, we are all ready, you know, for some entertainment and for, you know, sort of, um, you know, not being locked up, right? So I think, you know, that's exactly the point where, you know, we become more vulnerable to data loss because all of that data that we are tracking, whether it is the performance of athletes, you know, using it for competitive advantage, you slowly, you know, sort of lose sight of the fact that it can be used for espionage and sabotage. And identity theft is becoming more and more prevalent because of all this information that is out there. You know, I I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is that of trust. And I think many of us have a kind of an inherent trust in our favorite teams. We feel an affinity for them. And so uh, it's likely that if we get some sort of communication from them or maybe one of our favorite players, that could lead us to having our guard down just because of that affection we have for them. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. And the thing is, you know, uh, and, you know, because I've been doing this for over 20 years, I have to say that, you know, uh, you know, security is people, process and technology, right? It is as much of, you know, psychology play as much as it is a technology play, right? So if I were to tell you, hey, you know, can you just share your date of birth, your phone number, you know, I, I'm not asking you for your credit card. And, you know, can you share enough of your personal information so that you can win a raffle where, let's say, you know, you get to spend a day with your favorite player. How many of us will really refrain from doing that, right? And, you know, you you think about all these Facebook and, you know, social media games that we play, right? Uh, You know, funny pet names, favorite pet names, right? Uh, Where did you go to school? You know, which year were you born, right? All of this is a digital footprint of you, right? So when you're asked all of these pieces of information, in the context of spending time with your favorite player, you know, you really don't even think again, right? It's key that we not only invest in secure payment system and, you know, we are really doing sort of two-factor authentication, uh, you know, we're filtering emails, right? But in addition to that, the awareness of would you even know how to spot a fake app? Would you know how to, you know, be able to really, you know, let's say you got a call that talks about, you know, your, you bought a ticket to your favorite game. And now, right, we do have, you know, as a, uh, as a fan, we engage with these sports teams. And at the same time, the sports teams have to think about it in terms of cyber risk, uh, you know, trust and resilience. That's Bindu Sundresan from AT&T Cybersecurity. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We have been covering here on the CyberWire this uh, campaign, the scam campaign called right. Grift Horse, yes. which the folks over at Zimperium uh, have been tracking. 
Uh, interesting story over on Wired written by Lily Hay Newman that uh, outlines it. I recommend people check out. But I wanted to dig in with it uh, with you as well. Right. Uh, this is the kind of thing we cover over on Hacking Humans pretty regularly. What, what's going on behind the scenes here, Joe? So what's happening is these guys, uh, these bad actors, uh, don't really know who they are. But they have used a development framework called Apache Cordova. Hmm. And what Cordova does is it allows you to develop cross-platform applications. Why would you put a lot of energy into developing both Android and Apple iOS applications when you can just develop one application using standard web technologies like HTML5, cascading style sheets, and JavaScript to essentially build a web-based experience for the user that translates across different platforms. Okay. Okay, so that's the tool they're using is right. Apache Cordova, and it does just that. So it's it's a great tool for application developers. Okay. But because you're using a web-based technology, I can just put anything I want on the servers that the application accesses, hmm. right? So the malicious code in this case does not actually exist in the app. From the perspective of the Google Play Store, and from the, the and all of the people that analyze the apps, uh, and there's a, a bunch of them. Uh, and Zimperium is actually one of the people that looks at the apps before they get published. There's nothing malicious in the app hmm. until the user activates the app, and the app goes out to a command and control server and downloads HTML and the, everything that it needs to show the user things. Hmm. Okay, and that also enables new functionality. Hmm. And behind the scenes, it has access to a lot of different pieces of information about you, like your Google advertising ID, the equipment identification number, the EI, whatever that long string of numbers is that represents your phone uniquely. Right, right. It has access to that. Uh, it also has the capability of signing you up for premium services automatically. And it, it, well, not really automatically. It does ask you to claim your gift. Yeah, so right. let me just uh, interject here because yeah. it says basically, you know, you go and you download a, a what you think is a benign app, you right. know, a translator app, a heart rate monitor, that sort of thing. Yeah, all these, and they have a chart of these apps on the Zimperium report, and it's, it's yeah, amazing. They have two hundred apps that, are, that were equipped this way. Now it says after downloading one of the malicious apps, a victim would receive a flood of notifications five an hour right. that prompted them to confirm their phone number to claim a prize. Joe, right. if my phone were pestering me five times an hour to claim a prize, I would take it out in the parking lot and run over it with my car. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know which app. I, this happened a long time ago. I got some app that started doing this to me. Yeah. And – First off, it was a nightmare to figure out which app it was, was was sending it to me because it was an older version of Android. Now it says, hey, this notification is from this app. Okay. Right? Okay. And they have pictures of that. Yeah. But back in the Android 2 days, that wasn't the case. I just got notifications on my phone. Mm -hmm. Drove me batty. Yeah. Hated it. Yeah. So in this case, they get you to verify your number, but what you're really doing is you're signing up for a premium SMS service for – 42 bucks a month right. or something or other. Now, I think that's a little little high and greedy, don't you? I mean— Who knows? Maybe they're fans of the Hitchhiker's Guide. Right. Right. <laughs> but if you—these guys infected or uh, distributed 10 million copies of these things. Yeah. You know, if you can just go like a dollar a month, maybe that slips under the radar. 
Well, yes, but I think what they're counting on here is that most people, by the time someone gets their bill and reviews it, right, and then you know cancels or whatever, they've got their forty-two bucks, right, and they just whatever. keep it. Yeah, exactly. So, but it's interesting to me that you know Zimperium points out that this has been active since November of twenty twenty. That's a long time for something to be hanging right. around in the Play Store at this scale. Yeah, they were in there since November of last year, 2020. They were completely undetected by any of the antivirus companies out there. They had developed more than 200 of these apps, and they had this that sophisticated architecture where they download the malicious code from a website, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And they had a no-reuse policy to avoid the, the blacklisting of these servers or these strings. Right, they didn't reuse URLs. Right. Yeah. Uh, so... They say that that level of sophistication, and when I say they, I mean Imperium says that that level of sophistication, the use of these novel techniques, and the determination displayed by these guys allowed them to stay undetected for several months, for almost a year. Yeah, I almost mean, a was, year. This is a long-term campaign. They've got a, a close to 10, 10 million installs, and I don't know if they're counting that from the Google Play Store or from also third-party apps. Now, all of these apps have been removed from the Google Play Store. Right. That doesn't mean there aren't more apps out there that they haven't found yet. There may be, but they can't make the same claim about third-party app stores, mm-hmm. which is one of the one of the things that I frequently tell people is don't use third-party app stores, and this is exactly why. Yeah, but so let's talk about potential uh, protection here because these were on the Google Play Store. These were on so the Google Play your, Store, right? There's your walled garden, and you, yep. you so you you know I think rightfully have a, a sense that things are more secure there, that they've been through some sort of uh, check before you can download them. So what do you do here? First off, the risk is really kind of minimal for from from the American perspective, right? 42 bucks, maybe I lose it and just cancel the service and I'm done. Yeah. Uh, so it's not, you know, devastating or world ending for us. But that, that may not be the case elsewhere in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you do? I, I would say pay attention to your bill and fight every charge that you don't expect. Yeah. Uh, Google's usually pretty good about refunding premium service charges. Apple's also very good about that, but this didn't affect any of the Apple store products. Yeah. At least they don't say it did. I guess security awareness too. I mean, these, and whenever you see one of these prize winning things, they're they're generally a scam. Yeah. Prize winning. Yeah. You want a prize. I mean, if you got an app that's sending you prize notifications all the time, uninstall the app. Yeah. If it sends you one prize winning notification, uninstall the app. That's my (laughs) policy. Uh, yeah. I don't want you to try to give me a prize. I just want you to deliver me functionality. I like apps that that you pay for that you you know that you uh, pay a one time fee for mm-hmm. to not have ads on it. Right. I, I do that with a couple of apps I really enjoy, and uh, I don't generally like the subscription model for phone apps. Yeah. All right. Well, again, uh, the campaign is called Grift Horse, and uh, the folks over at Zimperium have been uh, leading the way on describing it. Uh, This article is from Lily Hay Newman over in Wired. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast where I contribute to a regular segment called Security Ha. I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. 
and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Haru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.